Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, July 9th, 2015. And tonight we have some very special guests, my good friends and comrades in arms. Dan Edstra, who has served as Senior Forensic Analyst for Living Lives since 2008. Jim Macklin, who joined with him shortly after that and has been a guest host right here on this show. And Charles Marshall, a lawyer in California who actually gets it and who actually wants to reach more people. And I'm helping him, and I'm helping them in their efforts to spread the word. And the word is, we're winning. Just a short word before I bring in Charles, Jim, and Dan. I think I'm starting to get through to lawyers and homeowners when I refer to non-judicial cancellation of mortgages. You would think that would be more confusing, but it isn't, apparently. It's just another way of referring to rescission. But it is something familiar to those who live in states where non-judicial foreclosures occur with a mailed notice of default and a mailed notice of sale. The so-called servicer appoints itself as the new trustee, which of course could be challenged, on the deed of trust and sends you a Dear John letter. It is all out of court through the mails, which is why it's called non-judicial. And what it does is put the burden on the homeowner to stop the foreclosure. And they have precious little time to do it. I think in Texas it's only a couple of weeks. In non-judicial foreclosure, the borrower must file a lawsuit to stop it. So rescission is non-judicial cancellation of the mortgage and runs by much the same rules as non-judicial foreclosure. But instead of the bank or servicer sending the letter, it is the borrower sending a letter. He's saying, dear John, or she or they. And instead of the borrower having a small window of time to react, it is the bank or servicer that has a short window of time and and some other problems. So the burden is on the bank to vacate the rescission all within 20 days from receipt of the notice of rescission. In non-judicial cancellation of the mortgage, it is the bank that must bring a lawsuit to stop it. Just like the foreclosure, non-judicial foreclosure, the borrower has to bring a lawsuit to stop it. The borrower sends a letter saying you, you shouldn't be foreclosing and you're ugly and stupid too. It doesn't do a thing. They have to bring it in court. Same thing for the bank and servicer. They send you a letter that says you shouldn't have sent the rescission and you're ugly and stupid too. 
doesn't mean anything except that they received it. You know that for sure. And just like the temporary restraining order that the borrowers seek when they go to court to stop a non-judicial foreclosure, the bank must go to court and make allegations. But here is their problem. They probably can't go to court. They can't go because they can't use the note or the mortgage for standing. They have to use real facts that they funded the loan, which they didn't, or that they paid for the loan, which they didn't. They can't use the note and the mortgage for standing, which is jurisdiction. The threshold question in any lawsuit is whether you have any right to be there. They can't use the note and mortgage for standing because the note and mortgage become void when the rescission was sent. So you can't seek relief from a court based upon a claim on a void instrument, and the note and mortgage are rendered void the moment the rescission is dropped in the mail. So saith not just me, but Justice Scalia and a unanimous Supreme Court. So they can only show their standing by showing that they are real parties in interest, which many of you who have followed me for many years know has been the real issue since the beginning of this whole securitization nonsense. Who are the real parties in interest? And the uh, Fordham Law Review article that I posted back in 2008 went into that in detail, and I think it's still accessible from the blog. And that's the rub. They can't do it. At least I don't think they can. I I don't think they can even make it up the way they make up the documents they do for foreclosure. And the other rub is that they have to allege that you sent them a notice of rescission. Then they have to allege that they're going to suffer actual financial damage as a result of the rescission. That's what allows them to be in court. And then they can allege whatever they think is wrong with you sending them the rescission. Just remember that first, the rescission is effective by operation of law. And the only thing that can make it not effective is a court order vacating the rescission, just like you would vacate a court order. And the only way they can get a court order is if they have standing to challenge it. And they file the lawsuit within the 20-day period. Back to Dan, Jim, and Charles. Welcome, and thanks for being on the show tonight. That, this is the point where you say hi, Neil. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. I appreciate the uh, introduction. On this whole issue of rescission, it's important that uh, everybody listening today understands that the Supreme Court reversed unanimously. You would mention the unanimously part. They actually reversed this Ninth Circuit decision. And right. the reason this this Jezinoski decision is so powerful is because Scalia didn't give any guidance at all on what the rescission letter looks like. I mean, hypothetically, and I'm not joking here, you could have written the, the rescission letter, you know, on a napkin or some other you know, paper. improvised paper as long as it was mailed and you can ideally you'll be able to share a reception of the uh, letter but even absent that if you put out a rescission letter within the three-year statute of limitations then you're golden as far as the law is concerned and that's 
absolutely an area of law that is needing to be uh, addressed big time in California. Uh, My firm is doing just that. And there's, there are just so many um, aspects to that area of law that we have on our side because of the Jezinoski decision, which just came down in January of this year. So essentially, you know, my counsel to everyone out there is that if you've had a rescission, even if you didn't rescind within three years of the origination or the refinancing of your loan, Scalia was silent on that issue as well. So there's some potential play in there for those who did not rescind within the three-year statute of limitation period. But rescission is an extremely powerful area of law to uh, to advance your interest. That's part of what people will learn uh, when they go to the sem- seminar you guys are giving. Charles, what number can people reach you at? Uh, the best number to reach me at is 619-807-2628. And, uh, yes, Neil, I'm glad you referenced that seminar. It's coming up on July 18th. It's going to be in Irvine, California. And we'll be discussing rescission and a number of other rights and remedies related to the whole foreclosure arena in California. I mean, uh, Jim and I have been working yeah, on recommend- these areas along with Dan for several years. So we're in a really good place to help homeowners out. Well, I, I recommend uh, that people attend that seminar. Um, and uh, lawyers and non-lawyers alike that uh, uh, you guys have developed uh, uh, a a well of information that uh, is very valuable. I find it very valuable. And uh, Dan and Jim have both teamed up with me uh, as presenters in seminars, and they do extremely well in communicating uh, the uh, essential facts, and Charles has a, a deep understanding of the procedures involved and how uh, uh, foreclosure defense uh, runs, what gets traction, and what will get traction as far as the rescission and that kind of thing. Uh, I've, uh, uh, it, it's really been a pleasure working with with these guys for, for these years because. There have been times, as many of you know, that I've been a lone voice in the wilderness, and uh, it was, they were always there to uh, to prop me up uh, when I got uh, despondent over the fact that everybody was telling me I was wrong about precision, that you had to file a lawsuit, that you had to tender money or property and all that, and I'm saying no, 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 but there's thousands of courts saying yes, 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 until... As Charles just said, Jessenowski, this past January 13th, they handed down a decision that said all those thousands of courts were wrong. And everything that I was saying was the the case. Um, Dan, um, we've been on a long journey since we teamed up in 2008. How would you describe the changes you've seen? There's been a lot of changes. Um, 
I, I some of the specific changes I've seen were in how lawyers and pro se are bringing lawsuits now as opposed to what they did in the past. You know, in the past we'd see very, very large lawsuits, you know, hundreds of paragraphs long, 20, 30 causes of action, 10, 15 defendants, you know, just a big shotgun approach or carpet bombing, whatever you want to call it. And now they're they're getting much smaller, much more accurate, and much more specific in what they're targeting. And you know that's one of the one of the areas of the of the workshop that we're bringing up is you know specifically focusing on H bore um, rescission and you know sp specific issues to look at with a notice of default you know among other things. So that's one of the that's one of the biggest areas that that stands out in my mind. Where where is the workshop, Irvine? Yep, it's in Irvine. We're trying to uh, nail down a specific location now. We should have that shortly. Okay. And who would you say should attend? Um, it's it's a workshop typically uh, geared for attorneys, um, but homeowners are welcome to attend. And we especially um, are looking for real estate to come in because obviously with real property, um, the real estate agents should should be familiar with these issues, how they apply or relate to a homeowner, and especially uh, specific areas um, that they they can use it on, which would be short sales for one. Okay, and you guys have a telephone number that people can call for for the seminar. Jim. Yes. This is Jim. Uh, they can call my office number as well as the number that Marshall uh, gave out. My office number is area code 530-888-9600, extension 101. Leave a, leave a message if you don't get a, uh, an immediate pickup, and, and you will get a call back. And there's also a link on the blog. You'll see that... Uh, uh, one of the blogs in the last couple of days has been uh, about their, their workshop. So, Jim, as long as I have you there, uh, you've been a very effective spokesman and one of the standout people who litigated pro se for years, years and years, against the pretender lenders. What advice do you have today for our listeners about going pro se? Well, first of all, um, Hindsight being 2020, pro se is not the way to go. There is a very, very high likelihood that any pro se individual is going to get uh, run into the ground on procedure. Um, and you're right. I have been. I've been in court now for over seven years. Um, my rescission case in Tila is at the Ninth Circuit now. It's been filed. And it's being consolidated with a parallel case that came out of the bankruptcy court, which the district court judge on appeal, instead of going to the uh, bankruptcy appellate panel, we went to uh, directly the district court, and they just sent us documents asking us uh, to consolidate to the Ninth Circuit case. That being said, um, every individual pro se person um, is going to need two things uh, before they go into this. They're going to need 
exceptional preparation that's done properly um, as far as delineating why they are able to rescind if they rescind after three years uh, of the documents being signed uh, because of this uh, issue of consummation of loan. Um, so they're going to need exceptional preparation work to be able to get this done right. And the second thing that they're going to need is they're going to need qualified counsel, period. There's no two ways around it. I'm, I'm not saying that to prop up the, the uh, legal interests of anybody on this call. I'm saying it from pure experience. If I had known anybody in the industry seven years ago that could have properly prosecuted my claims, I would have hired them in an instant, and I probably wouldn't be on the phone with you today, but that, it just wasn't available. And so, uh, again, uh, hindsight being 2020, the, the, the two most important factors are competent research and preparation documentation and proper counsel. And without both of those components, uh, you are probably dead in the water by procedure alone. I, I have to agree with you. I think that uh, the time for pro se litigation uh, is, is over. I think that back in 2007, 2008, 2009, et cetera, I think that some pro se litigants were doing okay and uh, uh, people like you and uh, – uh, and, and others in, in Arizona and New Mexico and Oregon, Washington, California, uh, many pro se people were getting favorable results or settlements, uh, but we're getting into the crosshairs of, you know, where uh, you really have to know what you're talking about. Uh, you were just talking about decision. And I think it's, you know, critically important to understand that just like nonjudicial foreclosure is a creature of statute and it has to be followed step by step, that's what rescission is. And if you don't understand that, you're going to jump ahead of yourself. And you're going to say, oh, I can't send a notice of rescission because I'm beyond the three years. Or, oh, I can't send it because... Uh, my mortgage may not be qualified because of the purchase money mortgage. Those are issues that come up later, and that's why procedure is so important. It doesn't stop you from sending the notice. And when the time comes, if the time comes, that a bank actually files a lawsuit against the borrower seeking to vacate the rescission, which is what they have to do, then you may have to address those issues about being able to explain why you sent it. But if they never file the lawsuit and they never comply, then at the end of one year, the statute says, and Scalia says we have to go by what the statute says, at the end of one year, they not only lost the note and the mortgage, but they lost the debt too. They don't have any claim left. Well, it means they come yeah, to yeah. put a fine point on that, this is Jim. I can tell you again, experientially, within the last nine months, that I have had no less than one federal magistrate and two sitting federal judges that did not understand the operation of law that occurred as a result of my mailing the rescission. And I had one right. federal judge say, on the record, well, but the opposition here is standing here with a note and the deed of trust in their hands, 
what am I supposed to do about that inequity? And and Mr. Marshall, who was on the phone, sat in the courtroom, and we said, they're holding nothing more than void paper, and he couldn't reconcile right. it. Right. Right. They're having a, a difficult time because it is so simple. And Scalia was, like, dripping with sarcasm when he wrote that opinion. I I think that the entire court, with was a unanimous decision, was annoyed that so many judges, thousands of them, got it wrong. It's like all of them decided that the separation of powers in the Constitution doesn't mean anything anymore. and We don't like what the statute says. We're going to change it. Well, that's just not our system. If If they want to interpret, as they put it, some words in a statute, they can only do that if they can find an ambiguity in the statute. If there's no ambiguity, they have to follow it. Just like you see some criminal court judges complain that they have to give a minimum mandatory sentence of 10 years to somebody that they don't think should get more than six months. They have to give them the 10 years. Why? Because it's a clear statute that says so. And that's what rescission is, is a very clear statute. And the Supreme Court has said there's nothing ambiguous about it. You just follow the words as they are written. And that alone seems to be giving people, you know, the most trouble. The second thing that I think gives uh, the people who who do know better a, a, a problem is that when we all, when all of us who went to law school, went there, we learned about rescission. And what did you have to do? You had to prove fraud. You had to allege and prove fraud in a lawsuit and offer to tender whatever it was you received back to the other party in order for your rescission to even be considered. And the problem has been that that was the law for so many years, but this statute has been in existence for 50 years, so it's no youngster. And until now, not too many people were using it. Uh, Well, I say now. People started sending notices of rescission back 10 years ago or more. They were ignored, and that leads to some interesting questions about whether or not there's a market out there, for those of you who are entrepreneurs, whether there's a market out there to either get property back in their name because everything was void or monetary damage. I'm not sure how that will work and whether uh, uh, local law might preempt uh, certain types of actions. But the fact is that for the guy who sent the notice of rescission within three years, just like Jessenowski, um if it was ignored and they went ahead with the foreclosure sale, that foreclosure sale was void under federal law, as I understand it, because the mortgage, the deed of trust was void. The note was void. There was no proper servicer. There was no trust that actually owned any loan anyway. But if they did, they needed to file a lawsuit against the borrower in Jessenowski, they would have to sue Jessenowski, and they didn't, uh, in order to stop the rescission, and they had to do it within 20 days. And the reason they had to do it within 20 days is that, as Scalia said, 
this is effective on mailing. It's not contingent on anything. So it happened. It's law. It's like a court order. And that's giving a lot of lawyers and judges, as you just said, a lot of trouble about, you know, what happens to the note and mortgage. Well, what happens well, and, to the you know, property when, when you do a non-judicial foreclosure, yeah? Well, this is Jim. What I was going to say is you're, you are drilling down onto exactly what we brought to the Ninth Circuit. We really simplified the question and said, does any right flow from a void instrument or act? And the legal answer is, of course, no, it does not. And we simplified it to the ridiculous. Uh, we referred back to several of the amicus briefs that were used in Jezinoski. Of course, we used Jezinoski um, as our preeminent case. And we felt like going to the Ninth Circuit in the most simplified fashion uh, would be the way to go. And, in fact, in the Ninth Circuit, in a case called Merit uh, v. Countrywide, just before Jezinoski came out, the Merit Court at the Ninth Circuit clearly and unequivocally said that no tender was required in order to affect a rescission because the rescission was effective upon its uh, notice. And so we, you know, from, but here's the problem for the for all the listeners out there, and, and it's a, it's a it's a good problem, but it's a problem. You're going to have to be prepared to go for this and and go up a step or two because the lower court judges are not going to just roll over and say, gosh, you're right. You have to be prepared. I can't say that enough. Preparation for this, uh, you're going to have to understand courtroom procedure, federal rules of civil procedure. This is all a federal question, and the federal court moves very quickly. And if you drop one ball uh, in your juggling act, it could be fatal. You're out, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of what I do in, in the uh, rescission analysis uh, report that I put out for, uh, from here and what I know you guys are looking at doing as well, um, to do as much of that preparation for the lawyer in advance um, so that they, you know, can pre- prepare rather than from scratch. They can get up to a higher level before they have to actually appear in court or, or file uh, a document and I think that you know what I think is another problem guys I mean, this comes from talking to uh, lay people for lo- to lawyers judges all kinds of people that I know I think that it's perfectly acceptable in the minds of many that in a non-judicial state a bank could send a letter saying we're selling your property. And nobody thinks twice about that. But to have the same power in the hands of a borrower is, for many, unthinkable. That's why we had so many thousands of judges get it wrong in, what, a million or two million cases? Right. They were all wrong. And the reason they're wrong and, and, they, and the reason why you got that question from that federal judge was that he could not conceive of how Congress would put that kind of power in the hands of a borrower. And he wasn't thinking about why they put that, that kind of power in the hands of a borrower because the borrower was getting cheated right and left by the financial industry. 
And exactly. the only the only choice that Congress had was to either set up a huge regulatory scheme with 100,000 agents to monitor every closing or to put a nuclear bomb in the hands of the borrower. And they chose to put the nuclear bomb in the hands of the borrower, which was the ability to give a notice of rescission. And the idea that that rescission could end everything, the loan contract, the note, and the mortgage, just by mailing it seems incredibly crazy to many people. But I think that notwithstanding that, we're all going to have to get used to it. Well, guys, uh, for the listeners, I will post uh, those telephone numbers on the seminar. We've run out of time. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.